The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're continuing our study of systematic theology based on Wayne Grudem's um, systematic theology, the the book by that same name. So um, there are actually lots of books with that name. Uh, Just by way of overview, we're dealing with the the infinite mystery of the person of Christ, the infinite mystery. Christianity is a mysterious religion, isn't it? I mean, at core, they're just doctrines that are beyond our ability to comprehend. God himself, beyond our ability to comprehend. Uh, But also this doctrine of the incarnation, how Christ can be fully God and fully man at the same time. And uh, we're going to be talking specifically about that today. Um, I don't think it'll take our whole time, but just how the the deity and the humanity of Christ relate to one another, how people have understood that, uh, how they've understood it wrongly, I think, over history, and how the uh, the Lord, through uh, the working of the Holy Spirit, led the church to reject false understandings and eventually to come to what was known as orthodox theology. Just by way of overview of the doctrine of Christ, uh, we're looking at the person of Christ, the humanity of Christ we first considered, the deity of Christ, and now we're in this uh, issue of the incarnation of how the deity and the humanity relate to one another in the one person of Christ. I'm on the first page of our handout. Um, tonight, I think we're going to begin talking about the atonement. That's the next major section, and that's a, an incredibly important study. I'm excited to get into it. It's going to take us some certain many weeks to go through and try to understand the doctrine of the atonement, what Jesus accomplished at the cross. Then we'll get into the resurrection and ascension, the offices of Christ, and then the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, we've already looked at the humanity of Christ, namely the virgin birth, human weaknesses and limitations, Christ's sinlessness, the question of uh, could Jesus have sinned, why was Jesus' full humanity necessary, and the fact that Jesus will be human forever. He, he's a man forever. That's not a temporary thing uh, that he took on. Uh, we began last week, and I think a little bit the week before, looking at the deity of Christ direct scriptural claims to the deity of Christ and evidence that Jesus uh, possessed attributes of deity. Now what I'd like to do, uh, top of page two in tonight's handout, um, is talk about this question, did Jesus give up some of his divine attributes while on earth? And this is commonly known as the kenosis theory, uh, which is a transliteration of a Greek word based on Philippians. Philippians 2, 5 through 7, there Paul is talking about humility. He's talking about the need we have to count others more important than themselves. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfishness or vain ambition, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasp and here it is but made himself nothing one of the translations is he emptied himself and the greek word behind it is kenosis he emptied himself taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and so we've got this idea of the kenosis the emptying of himself making himself nothing this theory um the concept has a a recent history it's not been around for most of the uh, of church history it began as many interesting ideas about theology do in the country of germany 
Uh, Germany, German theologians have pumped out some fascinating ideas theologically. As a matter of fact, especially in the 1800s, the 19th century, it seemed every 20 years some German theologian was rocking the theological world with some new way of understanding everything. And uh, I remember my systematic theology professor, Roger Nicole, said, I am not here to rock you. I'm here to establish you. To, to get a firm basis under you. We're not looking for shocking things, uh, whole new ways of understanding things. You know, there's this whole thing on the whole new way of understanding the Apostle Paul, especially in Romans 9 through 11 and, and all that. We're not looking for whole new ways so that the other 19 and a half centuries or 20 centuries of Christians were all wrong and thank God that this teacher came along finally and set us all straight. I mean, you just think about the preposterousness of, of that, that the Holy Spirit would not be communicating these things all those many centuries and then suddenly we have this new insight and so the concept began with some german theologians and also there were some in england that were seeing it before them it was a theory that had never been advocated in the history of the church totally a new concept the idea is this a voluntary limitation on christ's part concerning his deity he is basically choosing to not have the attributes of deity while he was on earth uh, in other words he didn't have them he emptied himself in heaven before he came and therefore he did not possess those attributes while he walked on earth now there are some uh verses that seem to support this for example uh omnipresence is definitely a divine attribute but jesus was only in one place at one time and so he uh clearly was not omnipresent while he was in a human body uh, also there's this idea of omniscience there are some things that christ did not know definitely he states that he doesn't know the exact time uh, of his return but only the father in heaven he says that in uh, um in the olivet discourse in matthew 24 and as he's going through all that you know that, that's such a radical idea and so troubling that some copyists later took out nor the son that phrase uh and so because they said that cannot be that there'd be something that jesus doesn't know but you know if we accept that that's what the text says that you know, the phrase, nor the sun is really there, then that opens up a way of understanding a number of other encounters Jesus has uh, in his uh, ministry. For example, the time that the woman with the, with the bleeding problem comes up behind Jesus and touches the hem of his garment and Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And it's like, Master, everybody's pressing in on you. What do you mean, who touched you? Lots of people are touching you. No, 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 no. somebody touched me for I felt power go out from me. If you read it just in a normal, natural way, we are assuming Jesus did not know who touched him. He wasn't simply trying to test as he does at another uh, place in John 6 where he asks uh, uh, Philip, uh, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people, the feeding of the 5,000? And it says he asked us only to test him. He already knew what he was going to do. I didn't sense that that's what was going on there with the woman uh, who was bleeding. He just did not know who, was who touched him. And then the woman, seeing she couldn't escape without an encounter, uh, confessed or said what she did. And, and Jesus said, your faith has healed you. And there are a number of others. Like, for example, Jesus, um, I think probably the most significant of all these is the uh, statement in Mark that as Jesus enters the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he is filled with wonder and amazement. And he says, uh, he's, uh, the translation is just not a very good one, where he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, or Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. Uh, the Greek word ekthambeomai usually uh, translated uh, amazed. Jesus began to be amazed, and the KJV brings that across. Jesus was amazed. Well, you're not amazed except that you're learning or encountering something for the first time. And uh, it's really a, quite a striking word, very troubling, except that we believe, I think, 
that at one level, Jesus did not have a full sense of what it would be like to bear our sins, what it would be like to drink the cup of God's wrath. And the reason was that the, that the father had to some degree hidden it from his humanness. He knew he was coming to die, that is true. But what it would actually be like to drink the cup of God's wrath uh, was revealed to him, I think. Uh, it'd be like the difference between looking at a black and white photo and watching an IMAX movie of the Grand Canyon, uh, an analogy I've used about other things before. I think God just opened up and in his human consciousness, he had an amazing sense of what it would be like to die on the cross under the wrath of God. And so he's sweating drops of blood and there's this overwhelming reaction. Well, none of that really makes sense except in reference to this idea that there's something that Jesus didn't know or in his humanness it was hidden from him. I just don't think Jesus could have could have taken a, a, another step with that kind of overwhelming sense of the wrath of God impending. Already he said, I have a baptism to undergo, undergo and how, how constrained I am until I undergo it. Uh, the word literally uh, could be related to a straitjacket. It's like I'm in a straitjacket until I finally go to the cross. I, I can't even imagine. And therefore, I think uh, that Gethsemane is the pinnacle of, of human courage. It's the, it's the most courageous thing that any human being has ever done for Jesus to say, not my will, but yours be done. I will take the cup. I'll drink it. Astonishing. Amazing. So anyway, long story short, there seems to be some indication of divine attributes that Jesus does not use, at least if, it, if in fact he doesn't possess them. The problem is saying that he doesn't possess them, that he has, he has laid not just his glory by, but he's laid these actual attributes by. He is in some, to some degree diminished in his deity uh, that actually in his incarnation, he literally did not possess these qualities. They were not his. And you see that runs into some problems when you're making such a strong statement that Jesus does not actually possess these attributes. Not just that he was, he was choosing not to use them, but that he didn't even have them. Uh, Grudem re- rejects this in a fivefold way. First of all, 1,800 years of church history and theology had never come up with this interpretation of Philippians 2. Why is that important? Well, like I said, it seems preposterous that something so significant, such an important way of looking at Jesus' incarnation, would only have surfaced after 1,800 years of church history. Um, the text also does not say that Christ emptied himself of divine powers or attributes. The text does say, thirdly, or does describe what it meant by emptied himself. And it meant he emptied himself specifically by taking the very nature of a servant, humbling himself, even to the point of death on the cross. It, mean it meant a change of role or status, not an essential change of attributes. The text, it goes way beyond what Philippians 2 is saying. Rather, the text literally describes what he emptied himself or made himself nothing means, taking the very nature of a servant, etc. That's what it was. It was the servant attitude of Jesus. And that goes on also to the fourth one. What is Paul's purpose in this statement? What is he trying to do? Is he trying to get the Philippian Christians to think of others as better than themselves? Does that mean you need to deny essential attributes of your personhood in order to do that? You need to stop being in some sense what you are in order to do that? That's not what he's saying. And that's not what Jesus did. Um, Paul's purpose is to teach the Philippians to be like-minded to Christ and to humble themselves in service to the needs of others. He's not commanding them to strip themselves of essential attributes. Rather, the whole matter has to do with status and privilege, not attributes. And finally, the kenosis theory must be rejected in view of the overall teaching of the New Testament the entire Bible. But there's one thing you just have to get established in your mind. Uh, you can't be God and then not be God. There can't be a trinity and then not a trinity for a while. It just that That is eternally set the way it is. 
Um, Jesus doesn't stop being God when he became uh, a human being. Neither did the Trinity stop existing when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, These things are eternal and permanent. He is God forever and ever. It's good to know that. Isn't it nice to know that something isn't moving in this universe that just isn't changing no matter what? And that, I think, absolutely is the starting point. The essential nature of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Spirit, never changing. And that's the way it is. I think once you get that set in your mind, then these theories seem really quite preposterous. Uh, like this one, this kenosis theory. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Colossians uh, 1, 17, In Him all things hold together and then hebrews 1 3 says the sun is the radiance of god's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word in other words these two verses together seem to imply that christ in an ongoing way keeps the universe going he continues to sustain and uphold the universe Um, and therefore he can't stop being god he's essential his deity is essential to the ongoing existence of the universe Also, this concept that kenosis is taught nowhere else in the Bible. It's really tough when you have a radical theory based on one translation of one verse. All right, that is is a very, very iffy thing, and so therefore it must be rejected. The conclusion that we're dealing with here is that Jesus is absolutely fully divine. The New Testament says Grudem in hundreds of explicit explicit verses that call Jesus God and Lord and use a number of other titles of deity uh, to refer to him. And in many passages that attribute actions or words that could only be true of God himself affirms again and again the full absolute deity of Christ, end quote. This is foundational to our faith, isn't it? We are Christians because we worship Christ as God. We believe that he is God. Now, some people ask, is this doctrine of the incarnation unintelligible today? Is it something we can't understand no more so than it's ever been friends this has always been a mystery it's always been a stumbling block to some that a mere man could be truly god and so therefore my (laughs) my feeling is we need to rely on a simple statement that jesus made to simon peter when he asked in caesarea philippi he asked who do people say the son of man is and some say john the baptist elijah jeremiah one of the prophets and then he said but what about you who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for all believers throughout all time, said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, you remember what Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. In other words, you will not believe that Jesus is God, except that God, the father reveals him uh, to you. If God, the father reveals Jesus to you, then you will believe and you will understand. Similar thing is said in Matthew chapter 11. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So the Son reveals the Father to us. The Father reveals the Son to us. But without that revelation, we will not understand either the Father or the Son. So is this doctrine unintelligible today? Absolutely it is to those to whom the Father has not revealed it. But for we who are Christians, He has revealed this, hasn't He? And so we read and we understand and accept that a human can be almighty God. And we believe it and accept it. It's foundational to our faith. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, this is not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. I can't reveal it to you. I'm just a teacher. I'm just a human being. But if you believe it, if you're sitting there in a chair tonight believing that Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh, then you have the same blessing that Simon Peter had. God revealed that to you directly to your heart. Isn't that wonderful? 
Isn't that a beautiful thing? It's contrary to uh, common sense, contrary to logic and reason, contrary to our experience. We've never met anyone like this, but we believe it. Even though we've not seen him, we believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. The next uh, item on the outline, it says, why was Jesus' deity necessary? Well, it's an interesting way to phrase it. Jesus' deity just is. Remember what he said, before Abraham was born, what? I am. So whether you accept it or not, whether we think of it as necessary or not, it just is. He is God. Many people deny it, but it's still true. But uh, the reason that Grudem is asking the question here is that we need to understand that this is not an optional doctrine. This isn't something we can throw away. Only someone who is infinite God could bear the full penalty for all the sins of those who would believe in him. Any finite creature would not have been capable or qualified to bear that penalty. In other words, the death of Jesus is worth more than the death of any, any created being would have been because he is God. That's essential to how three hours of his suffering on the cross can be sufficient for the sins of the world. Yes. Um, I'm, uh, I guess you're looking at this. Let me try to understand what you're saying. Yeah, we just cannot imagine it. I mean, first of all, you've got the problem of original sin and then an actual real sin, so we're all disqualified anyway. But even if you had an angel who is pure and holy, uh, in what sense would he be qualified to bear our sins? And Hebrews 2 implies that he had to take on a human nature anyway to bear our sins. He had to be human in order to do it. Uh, but what we're saying is we're turning the thing around. Yes, he had to be human, but now we're asking why did he have to be divine? Because in one afternoon, in, in, in a very short time, so that Pilate is amazed that he's so quickly dead, in such a short time he's bearing the sins of literally millennia of people uh, from every tribe and language and people and nation. How can that be enough? How can three hours on the cross be enough and kind of equal to eternity in hell for each one of these folks? Well, that's because he's an infinite being. He's, he is God on, on the cross while he's also a human being. So I think that's it's essential to our salvation, our understanding of the, of the atonement. But secondly, um, yeah, go ahead, Jim. Andy, I'm sorry. I'm looking for a summary statement. So this message you just sent to oh, yeah. me, the theory's right. wrong, yeah. but what happened is, is Jesus just chose not to use some of He possessed those attributes at all time and just chose not to use them. Yeah, and, and, and that's a complex thing. You say, I don't get it. How can you choose not to use omniscience? You know, how can you choose willfully not to know something? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know how you do that while still while still being omniscient. You know, I'm still still omniscient, but there are things I don't know. It's like that does not compute. It doesn't make any sense. But that's what we believe. And don't be troubled. Don't be troubled that it doesn't ultimately make sense at some level. Remember what Solomon said when he said, heaven, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. Think of a container of milk. That means the milk's inside the container, not outside it, unless you have kids. And then it's all over the table. In some cases, it can happen. But we, we like to think of the milk inside the container and not outside the container. Is your brain big enough to contain Christ? It can't. It, you can't get Christ in here. Rather, you just accept these doctrinal statements that are taught in Scripture. You believe them by faith. It's your faith that justifies you. The things you can't reconcile, you just say, that's my problem. That's my limitation. Okay, so yeah, I, the way I would say is kenosis theory is wrong because it says he did not possess these attributes. He left them in heaven. And I'm saying you can't divide asunder the essential nature of Christ. He can't stop being what he was. He still was God, fully God. 
but chose not to use those attributes as an act of his will, really. Okay, uh, secondly, on top of page four, uh, salvation is from the Lord, Jonah 2.9, which is, I think, the whole message of Scripture. Only God can work salvation for us. Therefore, Christ had to be divine so that God would get the glory, right? If, God were, if Christ were not fully divine, then in some way, God is not going to get the glory. But Jesus is Yahweh. He's Jehovah. And therefore, salvation is from Yahweh. It's from the eternal God because he is God. Therefore, he gets full glory that way. Um, thirdly, only someone who is fully and completely divine and also fully and completely human can be mediator between God and man, First Timothy 2.5, to bring us back to God and reveal God fully to us. Therefore, if Jesus is not fully God, we have no salvation and we have no Christianity. Gruden points out it's no accident that throughout history, those groups who have given up belief in the full deity of Christ have not remained long within the Christian faith, but have soon drifted toward the kind of religion represented by Unitarianism. By the way, uh, you've heard of the Unitarian Universalist Church. Basically, Unitarianism was a Christian doctrine originally. Basically, what it was is that the God of the Bible is one and only one. It's a denial of the Trinity, right? And so Unitarianism believed that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, is all, the, is all there was. Well, they started to extend that. I said, well, then who is Jesus? And they have different thoughts about that, different ways of understanding that. But it's, it ended up denying the deity of Christ, as Thomas Jefferson and others did. Meanwhile, there's some other f- uh, friends that are coming up with this doctrine of universalism, namely that Christ's death uh, atones for everyone's sins, effectively, atones for them. You know what that means? There's going to be no one in hell. Uh, literally, hell will be empty, of human beings at least. So... Um, Well, you know, after a while, you can see why they can kind of drift together and just become friends, all right? Um, Because you end up not needing to believe anything at all, whatsoever. Uh, If if everybody's been atoned for by the death of Christ, then it really doesn't make a difference what you believe at all, including that Jesus' death atones for everyone. And so eventually they give up on that too. And now they just say, there's nobody in hell. Nobody's going to be in hell. We don't know why. They're universalist ancestors said because jesus died for them but they don't say oh that doesn't matter and so eventually have you ever been to a unitarian universalist church see what they're talking about these days who knows eastern mysticism buddhism self-help group business techniques i have no anything goes but it all starts with a a denial of doctrine of the deity of christ and everything goes down from there all right. It says in 1 John 2.23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So the whole issue in that verse is, what are you doing with Jesus of Nazareth? Do you believe that he's God? If so, you have the Father as well. All right. And then 2 John 9, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. The whole thing is the doctrine of Christ. Now, let's see if we can understand as best we can the relationship between the human part of Christ, or if that's how we can speak of it, the the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ in the one person of Christ. Uh, First, let's look at three inadequate views of the person of Christ. The first is Apollinarianism. Uh, Apollinaris was a bishop in Laodicea around AD 361. Anyone remember anything about Laodicea? Remember the churches uh, in Laodicea? Remember which one that one was? That was a lukewarm one spewed out. Well, this is, you know, several hundred years later. And so along comes this bishop. And he taught that the one person of Christ had a human body, but not a human mind or spirit. 
All right, so he taught that the mind or spirit of Christ were from his divine nature as a son of God. So in other words, you've got this human body kind of like a, like a shell or a cup or a container and Jesus' divine personality and mind fills that cup. What's the problem with that view? Say again. Be overflowing, that's right. I mean, how can it come? come? But, but Zero in on his humanity, okay? What happened to the Mind that was originally there. Yeah, it was scooped out, I guess, and <laughs> discarded. I Go ahead. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's the, that's the essential problem here. He's not really a human being. We are more than just body. You remember that really interesting study? How many of you are here for how many parts are we? Three or two? Remember that? It's fascinating. Who made it through that study? Come on, I want hands. Who was there? I, man, I praise God for you. You know, you're still here. Well, apparently it's important because what we're saying is that we are at least more than just body. If we're body, soul, and spirit, if we're body and soul, spirit, or whatever it is you think, we're at least something material and something immaterial or spiritual. Well, if you scoop out or remove that immaterial or that non-physical part, you're not human anymore. Friends, we are more than just body. And therefore, Jesus as a man was more than just the body of a man. And so this is an inadequate view. Uh, he wasn't fully, fully human. His views were rejected by the church leaders who recognized it was not merely our bodies which needed salvation and thus needed representation in Christ's substitutionary saving work, but our minds and spirits as well. We want a savior who is fully human, who had a mind and a spirit, who could be tempted in his, in his mind just as we are. That's where our temptations are. That's where they reside. And Jesus had a human mind. Also, Christ has to be fully and truly man if he is to save us. Apollinarianism was rejected by several church councils, Council of Alexandria and Constantinople. The next inadequate view is Nestorianism. Some of you perhaps have heard of the Nestorians who took Christianity at a very early stage into China. Uh, there are sometimes evidences of Nestorian Christianity in the, uh, the crosses that are woven into Persian rugs and other places you find in the far western part of China, the Muslim part of China. You'll see some of these Nestorian crosses. It's really an interesting uh, uh, thing, this idea of Nestorianism. Well, Nestorianism is the doctrine that there are two separate persons in Christ, a human person and a divine person. <clears throat> Nestorius was a popular preacher at Antioch and from A.D. 428, Bishop of Constantinople. Probably never taught the heresy attached to his name, but was removed from his office and his teachings were condemned. It's an interesting feature of church history. How many times the disciples of a teacher go well beyond the limitations that a teacher sets up, but then he gets blamed for it, and that becomes the, uh, the, the view associated with his name. Well, why was this view of Nestorianism rejected? Well, first of all, nowhere in Scripture is it taught that the human person of Christ is separate from the divine person, able to make somehow independent decisions or deciding to do something contrary to the divine person. Rather, the consistent picture of Christ is of a wholly integrated person. We always get the picture of like two pieces of wood glued together, you know, funk like that. You've got the divine side and the human side. Uh, the problem with that is that if that's the way it was, then Jesus really could say we. And that'd be a little weird. I mean, talk about bipolar or something like that. I mean, that would be the probably one of the greatest, exa- the greatest examples of two poles of existence. You know, he would be truly the bipolar person. Um, and, and his human side could have an argument with his divine side and, and back and forth. You know, they, can, they could have this discussion. 
that's schizophrenic or something. I don't know. But uh, the Bible never says Jesus' human nature did this or Jesus' divine nature did that. Rather, there is a perfect and complete integration between the human and the divine side. Yes. I would think Nestorianism would have a hard time explaining that. Um, but for us, what we believe is that Jesus, you know, we don't believe in the kenosis that he left his divine attributes behind, but we surely believe that he left his glory behind. And Jesus actually prays that he could get it back. You remember in John 17, where he says, Father, give me the glory I had with you before the creation of the world. Well, my goodness, uh, even what they saw in the Mount of Transfiguration was a f- small fraction of the glory of Christ because it says in Timothy that God dwells in unapproachable light. Now you stop and think about that. What does that mean, unapproachable light? Well, it means, I think, that there's just this incredible brilliance to the person of God such that the holy angels have to cover their faces in the presence of God Almighty, though they have nothing to be ashamed of. Isaiah 6, with two wings they cover their faces and with two they cover their feet and with two they're flying. So on the Mount of Transfiguration, I think what it's showing is the perfect integration, that Jesus' body in some way represents that glory that is, has been turned down and therefore we believe he is glorified up in heaven. You know, he's radiating and shining and bright so that the vision of Christ that John has in Revelation 1, he's got a body. He turns around and sees one like a son of man and he's walking through the lampstands, but his head and hair are white like wool and his, his face is shining radiantly. There's this, but even there, again, we believe that, that Christ, for the benefit of John's survival, turned his glory down so he could reveal himself. Does that? Into divine. Yeah, but it was revealed to some degree even through his human body. His he, his clothing became whiter than any launderer could make them, it says in Luke's account. And and so even just the stuff pertaining to him that you could interact with in his humanness, that just shows he's just permanently incarnated. And so therefore, there's just a total infusion or, or relationship between the divine and human. There's no separation. It's not like, I don't even know how I could describe it, how the divine would be glorious, but the human's still just ordinary. It, I can't imagine it. Anyway, Nestorianism was rejected. The third inadequate view is monophysitism or Eutychianism. This is the view that Christ had one nature only. Primary, primary advocate of this view was Eutyches uh, from uh, you know, basically 4th, fifth, 5th fifth century, leader of a monastery in Constantinople. This was the opposite error from Nestorianism. He denied that the divine and human natures of Christ remained fully and uh, divine and fully human. Rather, he held that the human nature of Christ was taken up somehow and absorbed into the divine nature so that both natures were changed somewhat and a third nature resulted. An illustration would be like a drop of ink in a glass of water. Both the ink and the water change. And so there's just an essential change to both. Um, and again, what's the problem here? Well, here you have neither full deity nor full humanity. Both of them are affected. This is a loser on both accounts. And so basically bottom line is um, we can't mess around with the concept of fully divine, fully human, even if you don't get it and I don't either. We just have to allow it to remain a mystery. And so uh, in 451, the Chalcedonian definition of Christ 
came up with this orthodox statement. And basically this orthodox Christology, this understanding of the relationship between the divine and human persons of Christ has been true Christianity ever since. It's held by Protestants to Orthodox and by Catholics alike. We all agree in this matter. And this is what the statement says. I had to memorize this when I took Systematic 2, but I have forgotten it. So if it's all right with you, I'm going to read it. Um, but seriously, there are some key descriptions in here, and we had to defend each one of these key descriptors uh, with Scripture. Uh, Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards His Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards His manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, and here are the descriptors here, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. What I had to do is go through each of those withouts and and name the heresy that they were refuting with each of them. Each one of them had a heresy attached to it. All right? Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of Him and our Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. That's what we believe. And it's a lot of words, but basically what we're saying is fully God, fully man, fully integrated, without confusion, without separation, without division, eternally so from now on. Uh, I, I guess a summary of this whole thing is um, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. That's a key phrase from church history. Remaining what he was, he was God. He became what he was not, namely fully man, and has remained so ever since. That's what we understand. Okay? Any questions about this? Uh, this is deep stuff. You don't usually get this in a local church, but uh, you guys are interested and I'd like to share it with you. I want you to notice, by the way, the number of knots and negative statements in the Chalcedonian Confession, constantly putting up barriers against the encroaching of the devil's work. The devil's always coming and trying to eat at our our vitals, and our vitals are doctrines. And so the devil's constantly coming, and we've got to say not just what it is, but what it is not. We've got to find out what, what lies the devil's putting out and then say it's not this, it's not that, it's not the other. Now, I remember um, listening uh, at, at John, one of John Piper's uh, conferences talking about suffering in the ministry, and he's, t- he's talking about a man who lost his, his job. He was a... a um, a pastor and a preacher, a Christian leader, and he was a uh, the chaplain of a Christian college in Michigan. And he lost his job because he preached a sermon entitled, Why God is Father and Not Mother. Um, nobody would have had a problem with him preaching Why God is Father. It was the and not problem. Uh, it was the fact that he actually had the gall to stand up and put a fence up 
uh, to the encroaching strange teachings that had not even been imagined until X number of years ago concerning the actual nature, the personhood of God. Uh, I'm, I'm saying that a good, faithful Bible teacher has to make these not statements. You've got to say what the devil's saying and then say why it's wrong. Uh, and that's what happens here with the person of Christ. Okay, uh, this is a good node, a good stopping point. Any questions um, before we get into the atonement? Questions about the person? Yeah, Nikki. We have a question, but we don't know how to word it. Ah, well, like this, like the Chalcedonian thing. Word it like this. <laughs> What sense did he die? Well, God doesn't die. God can't die because he's immortal. Yes, he really died. Yes, yes, just the human part died. That's that's what we have to believe. I mean, the Jehovah's Witnesses mock the doctrine because they say if Jesus is really God, then God was dead in the tomb for three days. But remember what it says in First Peter three: He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, okay? So there was a separation. We believe that death is a separation of the spirit from the body. And so Jesus' body was lifeless in the tomb those three days. If you went there, you'd find, this, you'd find a corpse. Now, it didn't decay because God, in a very unique way, preserved it from decay. Uh, according to Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see decay, he said. But he was separated. He said, Father, into your hands I commit what? My spirit. So there's a separation from uh, the, the body and the spirit of Jesus. And that's what we call death. Isn't that what death is? The separation of the immaterial part from the material part? So that's the best I can, I can explain that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, with all the questions and stuff that I've got, I've raised, uh-huh. you know, I, I take comfort in the fact that God can do whatever he chooses to do God can do that's he can do whatever he chooses to do. Nikki, are you satisfied? Is there more thoughts on this? Uh, it makes your head hurt. Right? Okay, well, it makes your head hurt. And that's okay. <laughs> but reading the Chalcedonian Confession makes your head hurt. Well, it's I think it does. I mean, it's even worse if you have to memorize it. And, and then to trace back the heresies that, that connected to it and why they're wrong. It does. And, and you think, well, isn't this like how many angels dance on the head of a pin? It really isn't. Because if you actually buy into one of these false understandings of Christ, you're going to run into significant problems down the road. It just you're really going to you're going to be ruined if you ruin on, if you mess up on Christology. This is a biggie. Um, also realize, um, I know I've said you know we talk about the human beings being in three parts or two parts and all that. Uh, we believe that the disembodied spirits of dead people who have gone ahead of us uh, are still fully human, even though their bodies are waiting for the resurrection, don't we? Uh, and so keep that in mind. They're waiting for the resurrection, but they're still human. They're human spirits waiting for the resurrection body. They're absent from the body, present with the Lord, right, Corinthians? But they're still human. What else would they be? So uh, that's what I would say. Jesus was still fully human even though he had died. So he has that human nature, that human mind, the human emotions, all that stuff. Just the human body was waiting for three days for the resurrection, and then God gloriously raised him. So... Does that make your head hurt too, still? Okay, good. Even more, all right, good. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's really hard, especially when, you know, you get the 
<clears throat> the Lord, it seems, eating a meal with Abraham, and it says some have entertained angels without knowing it. And so I guess we just, you know, like Fred was saying, we don't want to limit what God could do. Um, but I think that may be one of these examples, and I, I'm out on a limb. I don't know what else to say, but um, there's this uh, uh, doctrine that Christ only seemed to be human. Uh, what's that called? Help me out with that. Docetism. Thank you. I think the angels only seemed to have bodies at that point. Remember that at one of the occasions how, was it Samson's parents who wanted him to eat something and he doesn't, but he just touches it and they go, the whole thing goes up in a fiery thing up to heaven and the angel with him, with all of it, you know, shh. well, he was seeming awful human before that. Come see a man, you know, they called him a man, but shh, he goes up in the, so I think he's not, he's not fully human at that point. He's not human. Maybe just appearing. I don't know what else to say about those things. I think there's something extremely significant about the verse in Hebrews where it says, Hebrews 10, a body you prepared for me. We believe that was inside the Virgin Mary's womb. And so we would have to say before that, there was no body prepared for him. The best I can do. My head's hurting now. Okay. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah, Darcy. It's not really related to incarnation as much as glorification. Christ's resurrection body and his incarnation. Yeah, there's one indication that they will, and that is that it's, uh, John says in, in Revelation 5, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing before the throne. And so I think forever Jesus will bear the marks of his ministry on our behalf. I don't think he bears all of them. I don't think he's got the marks of the, of the there's no indication there's the marks of the imprints of the thorns on his brow or whatever. He's not looking hideously disfigured eternally. But he at least has these symbolic representations that he died on the cross that he showed to Thomas. But you know, the, the whole thing with the resurrection body is quite mysterious, isn't it? And so he looks also like a, like a lion, like, like a raging lion who's uh, ruling. How do you look like both at the same time? I don't know. It's a remarkable statement. Good question. All right, let's look uh, briefly at the uh, atonement. We are not going to finish this study at all, but uh, it's a good way to spend our last 15 minutes. The question, this is uh, chapter 27, the doctrine of the atonement. Uh, The questions that Grudem is seeking to answer in this chapter are, was it necessary for Christ to die? Did Christ's entire earthly life earn any saving benefits for us? The cause and nature of the atonement, and did Christ descend into hell? So these are some of the questions that are in front of us in this um, um, uh, chapter. So let's begin with just the idea of the word atonement. The origin, the origin of the English word atonement uh, is derived from smaller words, at one meant. That's really where it comes from. It's namely that a broken relationship between two is made at one. There's a unity then between the two opposing parties or perhaps um, uh, differing parties. There are strange parties separated. They are now at one. The question is, how did that happen? How did the things that made them estranged and, and alienated from one another uh, get dealt with? And for us, since we're not speaking in abstraction, we're talking about atonement between us and God. How did sin get dealt with? How was sin atoned for? That's what we want to discuss. Grudem gives this definition of the atonement. The atonement is the work, of, work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. Now, what's noteworthy about that definition? What do you notice? He includes his life. So the life of Christ is part of the atoning work. And I think he's right. I really do. I think that Jesus' life under the law 
earned for us a glorious righteousness that he imputes to us positively, where his death deals with the negative side of our debt to the law in that we, we deserve to die for breaking the law. So I think both aspects are vital to the uh, atoning work of Christ. Broader look, uh, usually a focus solely on the cross, the shed blood. Grudem is including the whole of Christ's life in the atoning work, as we just said. He acknowledges that some saving work was still evident in the events after Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession at the right hand of God. However, Grudem chooses to deal with these as later uh, separate topics. Uh, Generally, we consider the work of the atonement done when Jesus dies. Okay? Uh, I know that it says in one place that he was raised to life for our justification. Nobody here is denying the resurrection of Christ or its importance for us. But just in terms of of where to stop the discussion on atonement, I think it's right to stop it when Jesus breathes his last on the cross. Okay, now what is the uh, cause of the atonement? Well, there are two key attributes of God. First of all, let's notice this. The cause of the atonement is in God. That's where it comes from. We can't atone for our sins. It's impossible. And the more we study God, who he is, the more we understand ourselves, the more we'll see that that is true. There is nothing we could have done. It was It's beyond our power to fix the sin problem between us and God. He had to do it. Absolutely he had to. And frankly, that's, I think, one of the big, big uh, points of sanctification, the life under the uh, law by the Spirit and all that, the years and years we spend after we've come to faith in Christ uh, and other things. We just see more and more how much we needed a savior how much we needed saving how how impossible it would have been for us uh, to atone for our own sins so therefore we're looking at god when we try to see the origination of the atonement it's in god and there are two key attributes especially that lead to the cross or let's say even better are displayed in the cross and they are god's love and his justice these two are especially on display at the cross now i can argue as i have before that there's hardly or scarcely an attribute of God that's not on display at some degree, at some level at the cross. I really think it's not hard to say that the cross is somewhat like a prism that takes white light and breaks it into every color there is. I think you can basically see every attribute of God in Jesus' work on the cross. See them all. Uh, You name an attribute and I'll tell you how I I think we can see it there. Everything from omniscience to omnipresence, omnipotence, all of them are displayed to some degree in the cross. But I think we can, it's right for us to zero in especially on these two, the love of God and the justice of God. Both are essential to understanding God's motive. Grudem said it is not helpful for us to ask which of these two is the more important, however, because without the love of God, he would not have taken any steps to redeem us. Yet without the justice of God, the specific requirements that Christ should earn our salvation for us by dying for our sins would not have been met. Both the love and justice of God were equally important. Frankly, I just see them totally related. I don't, I don't think we ever want to say that God is love, but he's also just. Uh, I really think that God's justice is an, a display of his love, isn't it? I mean, first of all, he loves what is right. He loves righteousness. The laws that he gave us, the Ten Commandments, are a reflection of his nature. And he loves these things. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Jesus loves righteousness. So therefore, Jesus' justice or God's justice really is love. Uh, Furthermore, he loves people by loving righteousness. What kind of universe would it be if we had a capricious and wicked God ruling it? How dreadful would that be for us? But it's a display of his love for us as created beings that he is perfectly righteous, perfectly just. All right, so we're not going to pick and choose between the two. I actually think of the two, though, we need to emphasize one more than the other these days 
Because I think for the most part, we, we talk a lot about the love of God in the cross. But I think we forget how much uh, God's justice was on display at the cross. And therefore, I frequently will say things like this. Certainly it is true uh, that, um, that the love of God was displayed there so that we would say that he would rather die he would rather die than live without us, as Michael Card says in a song. Clearly he did, because he chose to die rather than that we would not be with him forever. That's a mark of his love. But we would also have to say he would rather die than accept us just as we were <laughs> and not have our sins atoned for. He would rather die than that injustice occur. And so we, we don't want to just emphasize the love. He loved us so much he'd rather die than that we would go to hell. Definitely true. But he also loved justice so much he'd rather die than have us in and God just kind of wink at our, our transgression and say, no big deal or don't worry about it. That cannot be. All right. Uh, that's at the bottom of page one. Um, the back of this chart, this, this chart that I gave you, this is not from Grudem. All right. This is something that I put together a long time ago and I think it'd be good for you to give just kind of a, the overview of the accomplishment of the cross. What happened at the cross? And what I find fascinating here. Um, I got this a, a while ago. What I found fascinating here is the different ways the Bible speaks of the atoning work of Christ. There's different whole families of language the Bible uses to describe what Jesus did for us at the cross. For example, there's the relational language, the relationship language. Here you get language like reconciliation and propitiation. All right? So talking about relationship between us and God. Uh, the obstacle for us is that uh, we were enemies in our minds uh, under the wrath of God. Key verses are listed there, 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 18 through 21, and Romans 3, 25, Romans 5, 9 through 11. The outcome is that we are now at one with God. We're in a friendship with God. We're in a, re a reconciled relationship with him. So that whole relational side of the atoning work of Christ. Uh, secondly, we, we have this sacrificial language. And there you get all of the animal sacrifice um, and all of the blood, you know, the, the life of the creatures in the blood and that God has given it to you to make atonement for your sins. So there's that whole sacrificial side pointing really toward the death of Jesus, sacrifice and blood, obstacles or blemishes on the sacrifices and God's perfect standards. Key verses there listed, 1 Peter 1, Hebrews 7, Matthew 26, 28. Uh, the outcome is that, that God the Father accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and the sin has been atoned for, it's been purged. The third kind of language and the one that perhaps some of us are most familiar with is what's called the forensic or court language. It's the idea that we're kind of accused criminals and we're on trial and there's a just judge and there's an accuser and there's a law and there's a, there's a penalty and we're in trouble <laughs> and, and we, need, we need to get off <laughs> from this uh, this crime that we have committed, actually. And so there's the whole courtroom or forensic side, the idea of justification or justice or judgment or penalty. Uh, the obstacle for us is the law of God and his own perfect righteousness, our sin, um, God's justice, etc. Again, Romans 3, 21 through 26. The outcome is we have been declared not guilty by the judge of all the earth. Isn't that marvelous that God puts down the gavel and says you are not guilty of this, of this uh, crime, of this violation of my trans of my uh, my law this transgression criminals are made righteous and yet the law is upheld it's not like he says well don't worry about the law no somehow god found a way to declare us not guilty while still upholding his justice it's an amazing thing we'll talk more about that then fourth the fourth realm or language that we have is the marketplace uh there it's the idea of of kind of like the payment of a price uh the uh there you get language like redemption ransom purchase these kind of this kind of language. The problem for us is the price is too high to pay. 
You know, remember how Jesus told the parable about the man who owed 10,000 talents? You remember that? You remember what a talent was? 75 pounds of gold? Do you know anybody that's got 75 pounds of gold? I mean, that's an awful lot of gold. If we took all this, all the, the gold jewelry that you folks had and melted it down, I don't think we'd get to 10 pounds. Never mind 75 pounds. That's one talent. This guy owed 750,000 pounds of gold. Where are you going to get that? And you say, I don't, can't relate to that. It bothers me that, that, you know, at the NIV and others, the notes are millions and millions of dollars. Friends, it's not millions and millions. The Roman Empire took in 9,150 talents and taxes from its entire empire's holding in one year. So basically, this slave owned the gross national product of the Roman Empire. All right? So what would that be in today's language? Wouldn't that be not millions and millions, but trillions and trillions? Okay. I mean, how are you going to pay back trillions and trillions? I owe $11 trillion, but I'll pay you back. Um, It can't be done, but that's the very thing that the servant said he would do. I don't know what you could buy for 10,000 talents, though. I mean, what did he do with it? Do you ever wonder about that? Where is it? I mean, at least some of it. I mean, what do you spend it on? But Jesus set the bar. It's so high to show the price that would have to be paid because of our sin. It's immensely high, way too high for us to pay. Um, So the price has been paid. The captives have been rescued. Uh, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. All right. We'll we'll talk about the whole idea of ransom to whom. All right. Like what is the, the there's the theory of the ransom to the devil. We are not teaching that in this church. Okay. we're not. Jesus didn't owe the devil a thing. Neither did God. All right. But we will talk about this idea of a ransom. But all I'm trying to do is identify the kinds of language used to discuss what Jesus did on the cross. And there, there's that, that marketplace or purchase kind of thing. Slaves purchased out of slavery, right? That kind of idea. And then finally, there's the battlefield kind of language, that there's a battle to be fought. Uh, the idea of being rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought over into the kingdom of the son he loves. And, and I, I love that, that imagery of Satan's kingdom the, you know, being this, this dark, evil you know, fortress and, and there's these languishing souls within its walls and they can't get out and Jesus comes in and rescues them. And it's so exciting even more when you kick it into uh, Matthew 16 when he says, I will build my church and the gates of, of Hades or the gates of hell will not prove stronger than it. That's an amazing statement. The gates of Hades could represent death or Satan's dominion, Right? The gates represents what you're going to try to assault to get in. And Jesus says the gates of Hades will not prove stronger than it. What's the it? I will build my church, my church, and the gates of Hades will not prove stronger than it. Than what? Come on, you know, you know. The church, right, thank you. That is wonderful. You folks are just great. So encouraging. That means the church is going to be assaulting the gates of Hades. What is Jesus saying? The gates will lose. And why is the church bothering to assault the gates of Hades? You know why? Because the building materials for the church are inside. The living stones that he's building his church. We've got to go over the... We, the initiative's with us, and it has been for 2,000 years. We've got to go over the walls or through the walls to get the building materials for the church. And he says, it's going to happen. I will build my church. And that's a beautiful thing. But there's that, that whole battle analogy. Why so many different types of language for what Jesus did at the cross? Why all these different families of ways of talking about it? Why do you think? Sean. 
Because what happens is so complicated, you need to look at it from a lot of different angles. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's so big. It's so incredible. It's so immense what Jesus did that, that basically God's looking at it from just five different angles, just coming at it again and again, turning it around in our minds so that we can see just everything Jesus did for us. And even then, friends, it's insufficient. These are just quick, quick categories with some quick supporting verses and all that. Uh, what Jesus did for us is incredible. And I look forward to studying it with you next week. It's going to be a great study as we look into the atonement. Any kind of final questions? Anything else? Let's say. If not, I'll stand here for a little while afterwards and talk about it. Um, Chris, can I get you to close in prayer? Would you be willing to? Thanks. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.